could just be as quiet as he could. Maybe I should have gone into the, uh, I should have probably gone into the conference room. Too late now. Uh, is the door shut? Okay, everybody. I'm very sorry for the technical hitch. Hello and welcome to another growing chat. Hey, Rebecca. Incredibly special rowing chat. A month ago, we scheduled an interview with the author of this book, Small Puddles, Michael Danziger. In the interim, Michael has sadly passed away and his friends here present have very kindly agreed to come as my guests on Rowing Chat to talk about him, his legacy and his amazingly witty rowing book. Welcome everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks Rebecca. So I'm going to ask you each in turn to do a short introduction of yourself and your connection with Zig. So Carol, can you kick off? I'd be happy to. Thank you for inviting me. Um, Zig and I met about six months ago. I'm his uh, public relations director. I work with Merrill Moss Media in Westport, Connecticut. And that's how we met. And it was a wonderful time. It's something that I'll never forget. He was a marvelous man. Thank you, Carol. Dave. Oh, thank you. I was uh, Mike's varsity rowing coach at Yale. And uh, uh, sort of had the experience of coaching him over a several year period. He uh, ended up dedicating this book to me, although if you read it, you probably will have a hard time figuring out why. <laughs> Alex. Um, I was also a rower at Yale a couple of years ahead of Mike, um, obviously on the women's squad, but mostly here to put some color to the rowing experience at Yale from someone who was there, since Mike can't speak for that. So just to summarize, Carol Clapp, Dave Vogel, and Alex James. Guys, you are very welcome, and thank you so much for being here today. Carol, let's kick off with the book. Obviously, no one writes a book overnight. So what do you know about the background and the inspiration to Small Puddles? Well, the inspiration and the title, and I'm sure that Mr. Vogel can um, attest to this, is that uh, Zig, as he's called, was not the greatest rower at Yale. And the book came out of his memories of those four years where he tried desperately to letter. And uh, because he was, I guess, the perfect weight and height, the coach immediately asked him to join the team, not knowing that he would be the worst rower in Yale's history. Um, and the book, even though that might sound funny, the book is more about tenacity and never giving up. And after meeting Zig, and knowing that he had suffered from stage four kidney uh, uh, disease, he didn't give up and wasn't giving up and was even thinking of uh, making this book into a children's version for the very youngest rowers. Although, I was with him on several occasions where he was giving his talks and book signings. And he related as much to the younger rowers as he did to the older ones. And that just speaks volumes about this man named Michael Danziger. The book now, is funny and poignant and full of anecdotes about those four years. and. 
even though I have never rode in my life, it taught me a lot about when things get really tough. I hate to sound cliche-ish, but that's when the tough get rowing. I just coined that term. <laughs> now, Carol, I think you should roll back and give us the full title of the book. The book is called Small Puddles, the triumphant story of Yale's worst oarsman ever. And there are periods between oarsman and ever, just the way Zig wanted it. So who came up with the title? He did. Zig came up with the title, had it published, uh, came to Merrill Moss Media, and um, I couldn't be happier that I was chosen to be his uh, senior literary publicist on this. He was a delight, an absolute delight. Now, when we spoke ahead of time, you told me uh, a couple of wonderful anecdotes. The first one was, you said Zig was the most altruistic person that you'd ever met. Is there a story behind that? There are several stories, but the, this is one of his final stories. This, we were trying to get, Zig was not the most organized person, but he was the most dedicated person I've ever met. And he was trying desperately to get a table at the Golden Ore in New What's York that? City. What's the Golden Ore? Well, I think Mr. Vogel can explain that to you more than I can, but it's a, it's a very um, elegant event that, uh, uh, Mr. Vogel, tell them what the Golden sure. Ore was all about, and then I'll tell you what it, happened with, that, with him trying to get that check there. It's an annual awards dinner that is uh, held by U.S. Rowing, the national governing body of rowing in the United States, and they honor uh, people in the sport of rowing. It's uh, held every November. And uh, the chief honoree at this particular dinner, who was receiving the uh, U.S. Rowing Medal, was uh, actually was my coach at Yale, the a lightweight coach who preceded me, Jimmy Joy. Uh, and uh, Mike agreed to buy a table to sponsor the uh, Yale coaches to go down to be at this dinner. I guess I'll pick it up from there. It's not that he wasn't writing the checkout, but there were some strings we had to pull to get it written out. And at one point I had said to him, Zig, you're going to lose the table if we don't get this check to them in 24 hours. And he said to me, Carol, I don't care about the table. I care about getting that money to them so that they can do good with it. And I said, oh, that's fine. <laughs> we can do that. So um, that is uh, one of the, one of the uh, more altruistic stories um, that I can tell about Zig. He was... Um, very concerned about young people, and I, I guess that's why he, um, and I don't want to jump the story too much, but that's why he co-founded um, the foundation in Boston. Stepping, Stepping Stone, Stone. Found out, yes. Um, where uh, he helps children, underprivileged children, get the education uh, that he deems so important. You know, Zig lived a privileged life, but you would never know it meeting him. And he wanted to make sure that children who did not live the kind of life he lived um, were, were not shortchanged in the education uh, department. Fantastic. And in fact, he touches on the inspiration for this foundation in the book, where he talks about how he helped out um, a young boy just by hanging out with him and showing him around a university on a regular basis and giving a little sort of older brotherly guidance. And I'm guessing that was, although the book doesn't go into all the detail, I'm guessing that was part of the inspiration, Carol. I, I think it was, and Zig, and I'm sure that um, his colleagues and Mr. Vogel will um, attest to this, um, was a big boy himself. He was a big little boy himself and was always around to help someone in need. I've never met anyone quite like him and 
when my grandson met him at the um, the Housatonic uh, rowing event in Connecticut, um, I get, for whatever reason, my grandson bonded with his dog, uh, uh, actually a puppy, but he weighed 95 pounds. He weighs 95 pounds. And Zig was so enamored of the way the dog and the boy got along that he threatened to send a puppy to my home. And this is a New Finland. And you know how big they grow. And we already have a puppy. And I said, Zig, if you do that, I will never speak to you again. I was petrified that, that this dog was going to be brought up in an, in an Uber car and dropped on our doorstep because my grandson and his dog got together. <laughs> it was unbelievable. It's a wonderful, wonderful yes, story. Yes, Thank yes, you, Carol. Yes, yes. Um, now, I will uh, pre-announce that Carol has kindly arranged for two copies of the book to be made available as prizes in our monthly prize draw, which we give to anyone who's subscribed to the Row Perfect newsletter. And I'll go into the details later about how to get a hold of those. Having said that, Carol, where can you buy the book? Uh, go on Amazon.com. That's the best place to order the book. Fabulous. Now, Alex. Yes. A senior female rower on the Yale program, a student at the similar time. What on earth was it like? Well, you know, rowing is kind of having a moment right now. And uh, we've had the boys in the boat, which has gotten a lot of attention. And then a little bit more recent Hollywood representations of rowing. And neither one of which are a very accurate picture of what it was like to row at Yale during the 80s. And that's one of the beauties of Zig's book is that between his own note-taking and journaling, which apparently was copious, and his prodigious memory, and his great way of putting details. Um, Small Puddles is a great uh, representation of what it was like. Um, it was an interesting time in rowing because um, women were just starting to row you know, in the late 70s, and um, collegiate rowing was just starting, starting to take hold. Inside the Yale Boathouse, it was very much three separate communities, and um, Mike kind of uh, conveys that. The heavyweight squad, who definitely thought they ruled the roost and functionally somewhat did, at least from a budget standpoint. Um, and the lightweight, the lightweight men's team and the women's team, and they're, in some ways the women and the lightweights were a little bit allies because we both were um, the squads with less money and less control of the schedule and less good equipment and uh, all of that. Um, but uh, it also, you know, just prior to the years that Mike was there, the relationship between the women's team and the men's team, particularly the men's heavyweight team was not a good one. Um, I think partly because of that resentment. And um, there's some kind of interesting stories about that, a pretty, uh, pretty, um, critical story early in Title IX when the Yale women's crew uh, did a naked sit-in in the athletic director's office to draw attention to the underfunded nature of Yale women's crew, which was one of the stepping stones to Title IX. Um, Just roll back. Hang on a minute. This never happened in the UK where I'm from. You all went to see the athletic director and then script. Oh, I, was not, I was not a part of this, but my coach was. <laughs> my freshman year coach was. Um, they actually, I guess Title IX had been passed, but it hadn't really been implemented and started starting to have much impact. Just and, pause one moment for international viewers. Oh, what is, what is Title IX? Title IX is a federal law that requires that um, there be no discrimination. I, I actually am not going to get it exactly right. Dave can probably explain it better than I can. But there cannot be discrimination in um, the programs available to women and men in a university. And that can take, there's various tests for determining that discrimination. But some of the sort of most basic ones look at the relative population of women and men in the school and both spending and participation in athletics must be proportional to that population ratio. Um, and once it was fully implemented, 
as it is at this point, Title IX is a huge part of the reason why women's sports have grown like gangbusters in the United States. Um, you know, women's crew was one of the huge benefactors because um, as people in the rest of the world know, we spend uh, a lot of money on what we call football. And if you've got a Div 1 football squad, it's going to have a huge, huge budget. So you need And there's to have no women's football. And there's no women's football. So then you need to look for other places that you can get a lot of athletes involved and spend a lot of money. And women's rowing turns out to be one of those places. Um, none of that had really taken hold in um, 1981, which I believe is the year that Mike was a freshman. Um, so we were still kind of lumping along with pa passed down boats and, um, you know, our schedule was very much dictated by the heavyweight men's crew and, uh, you know, we didn't have near the travel or uniform budget or anything like that, that they did. But, um, but we still had a lot of fun. And another big difference between then and now, um, was that a, a majority instead of a minority of the athletes were walk-on athletes, um, so at least at the lightweight and, um, women's level. There were always a handful of recruited athletes, but there just wasn't much high school rowing. So there weren't many people to recruit. Now, so just, to, just to clarify, a walk-on is someone who has never rowed before they join the rowing team. So correct. they are novices in the lingo. Yep. So it's freshman great. year, um, they are trying to learn how to row. And typically it's typically if somebody is recruited, they often are not caused to suffer novice rowing. So you basically have, everybody is a novice that is trying to learn together. And one of the things that Zig kind of captures pretty eloquently is just how God awful that really is. Um, it's, it's, there's an awful lot of thumping and crashing and bang knuckles and handles in the back and nothing like the elegance of uh, rowing is it, can, can, that it can turn into. I'm going to take that moment to read a little bit. That's exactly what you just described from the book. Winrick, it took me about three weeks to realize that Yale athletes call their coaches by their first name. When Rick decided we had finally displayed a certain minimum level of skill in the tanks, he announced we would start rowing on the water. We all jogged about a mile down Chapel Street towards the Yale Bowl until we reached the lagoon, where the freshman squad practiced in the fall. It's a protected channel of almost 2,000 meters. Next to the dock was what looked like a large garage. Rick opened the doors and we all peered in. The space was dark and musty, but we could see large wooden boats on several racks. The boats looked sleek and fast. I couldn't wait to jump in. Rick divided the 16 oarsmen and two coxswains into two boats. I was assigned to the two seat and would be rowing on the port side. I'd written port and starboard on my left and right sneakers just to keep things straight. Since we'd been moving backwards, however, port was only the left-hand side for the coxswain. I had to quickly reverse learn the words I had given each sneaker. He then goes on to talk about the athletes who already knew how to row. A week or so of rowing in pairs and fours, and finally we began to row all eight. The balance was incredibly precarious. If all oars weren't on the water at the same time, our shell teetered in the water like a bicycle right after Dad took the training wheels off. The boat would slam from side to side, sending knuckles crashing into gunnels and agonized cries of pain and frustration into the air. As bad as this was for us neophytes, it must have been way worse for the experienced oarsmen. Colin Cook, for instance, had rowed for years at Seattle's Lakeside High School. He was stoic, but had to be seething inside. John Ragrant, who rowed on a Canadian junior team, was less patient. Set the motherfucking boat, he would scream whenever we fell to one side or the other, which was always. After practice, he would grumble nonstop about how things were so much better where he used to row. I wondered why he didn't just quit if he thought we sucked so badly. And sure enough, one day he did. Rick called his name at practice and there was no response. He was gone. And I'd almost never see him and certainly never talk to him again. I learned that that's the way it was in crew. When someone quit, they just seemed to drop out of my life. We go from seeing each other every day and talking about practice over dinner to nothing. 
no contact at all. I began to find out that Orsman formed a unique and tight fraternal order, and when somebody defected, they were all but forgotten. Alex, talk to us a little bit about this thing about quitting. What is it? Uh, I mean, Mike was particularly bloody-minded about it. I don't actually remember thinking about quitting. Um, so he and I must have some sort of, of the same disease on, on that front. Um, once you started, you did it. There were some very good rowers who did quit. And it was actually not uncommon for them to be the recruited athletes. Um, the, uh, you know, the thinking kind of was just that they'd done it enough. You know, they'd done it for three or four years in high school and um, just got burned out. Now that's kind of par for the course in 2017. I mean, you row for three or four years in high school, then you row for four years in college. And then if you're really, really good, you spend another 10 years trying to make a national team. So um, long rowing careers, I think, are more than more the norm. But um, it is absolutely true that once somebody quit, they were gone. Just You just didn't have time to see them. I mean, we didn't. So Yale, we did not row at the crack of dawn, which, you know, everybody, as soon as you tell somebody that you rowed in college, they're like, oh, I couldn't get up that early. We didn't. Um, we, we got on the bus at 345 and took a half an hour bus ride out to Derby and rode in the evening um, and then rushed to make the dinner before the dining hall closed and then went and tried to get your homework done. But still, it was, it was a full day. And if they weren't, it, you know, you spend a lot of time socializing on the bus as the one scene in which I am featured uh, takes place on the bus. Um, so, and they were just plain old yellow school buses. We bounced back and forth to Derby, which was a good long ride every day. Dave, did you have to drive these buses? No. We had, they were hired. And as a coach, tell me about the structure around this athlete recruitment and quitting thing from your point of view. What, why, were you allowed to drop an athlete? We were. Uh, there was very little incentive to do that because as long as you had seats in the boat, uh, you, you just kept people rowing and that was part of learning. Uh, with the large number of walk-ons, uh, novice rowers who populated the teams at that time, it was all about teaching. So it takes a while to get the skills right. And we, uh, we tended to be very open to anyone who wanted to make the commitment. You probably understand that Yale itself is a, is a school that uh, takes a lot of, it, the students who are there are very highly motivated students. They are overachievers. They typically are, uh, to get into the university, have to be in the top one or 2% of their, of their peers in high schools. Uh, so they're, they're very achievement oriented. Uh, on the issue of quitting, they are all very used to succeeding. Uh, so they are somewhat reluctant to quit. Uh, but quitting is an easy habit to acquire. Once you've started quitting, it seems to be a little bit easier, I think, for most of them. Uh, Mike was not a quitter, so that was a good thing. Uh, at, the way we recruited was to put a boat out on the, uh, on the common spaces of old campus, stand around when the freshmen were registering for classes and drag anyone who was tall over to the boat and try to convince them that they maybe ought to try a sport. And we would, we were very successful at that. And can you tell me what was your personal first memory of Zig as one of the presumably tall and lanky young athletes in your squad. My very first memory of Zig was talking to his freshman coach, Rick, about this guy that they'd found who was about six foot, four inches tall, which is extraordinarily tall for someone that light, uh, who was perfect for lightweight crew. 
And uh, with that kind of length and leverage, obviously a, a coach is thinking great things for this oarsman. Uh, and Rick said, yeah, guy came up to the boat, introduced himself as Mike Danziger and proceeded to tell me that in high school, he could pass his entire body through the head of a tennis racket. <laughs> that was my introduction to Zig. <laughs> Presumably with no strings in the tennis racket. That's amazing. But a regular size racket, not one of those new fangled big head rackets. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's with no strings. <laughs> and how does a child discover that? No, no don't, don't answer that. Well, if you knew if you knew Zig, you would you would understand how a child would know that. He had a very quirky imagination. Now, in the book, he talks about um, receiving a letter introducing him to the opportunity to row. How did that work? Was that part of your recruitment? Absolutely. Uh, in order to, because because rowing was uh, a sport that most of our athletes picked up in college. We needed to get a large number out to have a chance to sort through and get uh, a, a good sampling of really good athletes. And the process involved at the outset, sending out information uh, and just taking height and weight uh, off of the registration rolls. And we would write letters, uh, send them out to all the incoming class, uh, all the tall, Tall men got letters, tall women got letters. Uh, and the that was where the recruitment really started before they ever made it into, camp into campus. And that, that had been a time-honored tradition within the Ivy League. Uh, when, I, when I first went to Yale, I, I still remember that the recruiting letter that, convinced, that interested me in rowing came from Brown University where I had also been been admitted and the Brown coach was very quick to write letters to everybody who's over six feet tall. You've got to try rowing. So I ended up rowing at Yale. Fantastic. At my university, they invited us to drinks parties and plied us with multicolored cocktails. And they also, <laughs> I remember being someone saying, Oh, you're tall. You should try rowing. I was like, why not? Now that might've worked. That might've been a better idea. actually. <laughs> <laughs> You certainly got the sociable recruits. That now, was something that changed during four years at Yale as well, drastically. Tell us. Oh, the drinking age. So I started Yale at 79 and graduated in 83. And I chased the drinking age all through my career because it was 18 when I got there and I was 18. And then it was 19 and I was 19. And then it was 21. <laughs> now it's 21 everywhere in the United States. So. I love it when I get carded. <laughs> Trust me, it happened at the last head of the Charles I went to. It was great. I actually figure they're fishing for tips at this point. <laughs> so, Dave, you started. You start with a, a bunch of athletes who have got one year's rowing experience. Is that right? That they move into the lightweight program in their second year. Right. And I'm sorry, I've got to let this guy in, but why don't you go to Alex for a bit? I'll be right back. Go. Alex, student hijinks aside, um, was university the first time you personally went into a sport that was as, as time consuming? Or were you a high school athlete who did everything? I had never done an organized um, scholastic sport before crew. Um, I was athletic in high school, um, rode horses and was a runner. Um, I, so my background in the sport is that my stepdad is one of two founders of a rowing business. And that business was founded in 1978. So it was founded just before I got to school. And so that was actually why I went and introduced myself to the coach because I had sold him product because I worked in the business. Holiday uh, jobs. You see how handy is that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'd done some soldering in the basement, not particularly successfully and I had not considered rowing and I was, was an am quite short. I'm five foot seven, which for rowing is, is short. Um, 
but he encouraged me to to try out and my coach my novice year coach um was a phenomenal woman athlete pretty legendary in the sport named chris ernst and chris is actually five foot five so i didn't have much of an excuse You're told about um, that. yeah and uh so so that was why i i have same boat same situation as david described um the Two crew coaches were standing by an eight in the middle of the quad, and I went over to make sure our product was in that eight, which it was, and introduced myself to the coach, and, and um, he asked me to start. And I actually did not think I was athletic. Um, I have, like a lot of rowers, probably Mike included, although if he played tennis, maybe not. Um, I have really, really bad hand-eye coordination. So all the typical uh, high school sports had been just an endless source of embarrassment and being picked last for the team and all that good stuff. Um, but once I uh, kind of figured out how to, uh, I, I did learn that I was A, very tough, and B, had really good strength endurance. Um, so freshman year, I was a pretty bad rower technically, but I still tried really hard. And then uh, sophomore year, I, I seat, seat raced my way into the varsity and was in the varsity all three years. Now, one of the essences of not giving up, which is, of course, a strong theme in, sounds like, your personal rowing career, obviously Zig's rowing career, and Dave seeing as the coach's point of view. Alex, what do you think is the essence of rowing as a sport that somehow creates bonds that help people to overcome this type of adversity? It can be bonds and it can be the biggest battles of your life as well. I mean, there's a reason rowing pictures are hanging in the halls of every corporation. I don't know about the UK, but certainly in the United States, mm -hmm. if you can walk through a big business and not find some picture of rowing with the word teamwork underneath, um, you're in an unusual business. Um, there is, in my view, no other sport that uh, requires as much of the individual and gives them as little individual recognition for it. It is, it is very much a team sport. Um, and that's that's its beauty so something so about something sitting on the bus, bus on the way to the, the, way river, to the river every day every day builds these builds bonds. These bonds. It, that and you know the ratio of workout time to competition time is just completely ridiculous um yeah you know most of us did double practices in the winter um total practice time you know all in was a solid four hours a day and then you know we had eight intercollegiate six and a half minute races i mean it's a little ridiculous <laughs> and how it's not quite as bad as training the entire year for the oxford uh cambridge race but <laughs> that's only a six month program it's, it's easy yeah <laughs> but yes, we did talk about endlessly calculating the number of hours of practice compared with the number of strokes in the race. For 220 strokes, how many hours of practice goes into each stroke? There's also something which, uh, as Mike alludes to in the book, he did not experience very often. A boat that is going well, you feel as strong as eight people. And it's... It, it absolutely positively, you you rise above your own personal limitations. There's something about the momentum and swing and just what you're feeling that you you absolutely do things that if you tried to do it by yourself on a rowing machine or by yourself in a single, you can, the rare person that can make themselves do it by themselves. And that's a pretty awesome feeling. Dave, as a coach, what is it about crew, the young athletes, the relationship with the coach? What is it that digs out the psychologies of the non-quitter? Well, uh, I think as, that as a coach, uh, you have to provide an environment that is... Uh, uh, the kind of environment that encourages 
surpassing your limits, uh, sur uh, a, an environment that is all about testing yourself and uh, being the best at something. And at the time that Mike was rowing, the Yale Lightweights were at the beginning of a cycle of uh, domination within that within that uh, world of rowing in the United States. And uh, we're right at the top of the pack of, of, uh, of the lightweight crews in this country. So it was a very high performance and a very high uh, achieving group. Uh, people set their goals very high. And the coach's job is to be sure that people are challenged and tested to do more when they can. So you kind of have, you, you're not, uh, I would say you're pushing people and that causes some people to break. Uh, you, you have to find the right kind of buttons to push with different athletes. Uh, as you might gather from Mike's book, uh, there was a certain amount of negative reinforcement to my style and, uh, I think everybody, I think the athletes who, who stuck it out were just challenged and they, they wanted to prove that they were better than I thought they were, than I thought they were. Uh, so uh, Mike was one of those. Uh, he never, <laughs> he never proved that, but uh, uh, I, you know, it's just, uh, I, this the book is hilarious. So you would gather from the book that he was having a lot of fun. You might incorrectly infer from the book that it was just kind of a fraternity or or a uh, uh, just a, a group of guys having fun. It was a lot, a lot more than that. And at the core, it was very very challenging and and it was very very serious for those guys, particularly the members of the top crews. And uh, there's a lot of room for fun. One of the reasons that Mike was a valued teammate was that he always showed up for practice. And he did provide uh, a break. He provided levity into what was sometimes, as Alex described, you know, you're fighting for, you're fighting for a seat in a boat. Uh, there was a lot of stress. There was a lot of expectation by the coach. That you would that you would do more, and uh, so the coach is not there to make friends. The coach is there to challenge people to be better. Now, one of your former athletes and an international level lightweight is Mike Hard. Am I right that you coached him? Absolutely, yeah. So another another person who who came to Yale as a novice. Uh huh. Well, congratulations, Coach. Mike sadly would have loved to have been with us today, but work commitments have taken him away. And he very kindly gave me an interview. And I'm going to take the liberty to quote from some of my discussion of Mike. Mike said, Zig was both a rower to me and he was my best friend, but he wasn't always my best friend. And so there are two things I'd like people to know about Zig from a rowing perspective. First, he was a very bad rower. He had a passion for rowing that equaled my passion. And I went on to row in two world championships. And I love rowing for obvious reasons. Zig came nowhere near that level. And yet he was just as dedicated to the essence of rowing as I was. He taught me, and I believe he can teach many other people, what rowing is all about because of that. Secondly, as a friend, Zig was particularly unique. And unfortunately, I just had to say this at his memorial service. So it's kind of emotional, repeating it in front of a thousand people who were there packed into the church on Harvard Yard. The thing that made him wonderful as a friend is that he was most likely the funniest person I've ever met. The times you spent with Zig were always more fun than any time you ever had. The stories he told later about those experiences were 10 times better. With Zig, you weren't just good, you were brilliant. With Zig, you weren't just a brilliant rower, you were a god. And he was unique that way. So am I right that he describes the top rowers as gods, Dave? 
Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's Zig for sure. Uh, he's interesting person, unique, never met anyone like him. I'm sure I never will again. And, uh, it, it, a very ordinary day in Zig's life was like the most chaotic day that you will ever experience in your life. And I, I really, I can't imagine how anyone lived that way, but Zig just had a, a, a love of life that was unparalleled and, uh, he made the most of every day. So, uh, Tell us, do you actually know what happened on an average zig day? Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, now, then we're going to get into stories and we'll never stop. I was, I was at the memorial service. I was afraid that people were going to start telling stories because I would have been there for at least a month. Just the, the, the zig stories are endless. Uh, Pick one. Uh, well, when we, when Carol first, uh, when I first met Carol, the, the publicist for the book, Zig was at the park where the head of the Housatonic takes place on our river, on the Housatonic River. And he was signing books and had a tent there. And, and, uh, we were chatting and he, he needed a, he needed a, uh, he said, do you get cell service here? Well, I had a, my doubles partner works at Apple. So he had a, his phone gets cell service anywhere. And, uh, oh yeah, we get cell service. Uh, what do you need? He said, well, I've got, I've got to get somebody to download the Tesla app for me because my Tesla, I, I, I lost the keys to my Tesla and I, I got to start it. You can do it with an app. Uh, well, where'd you lose your keys, Mike? Oh, I, I lost those a couple of years ago. Well, Mike, why didn't you get a new set of keys? Oh, I, I just started with the app. And at which point my doubles partner says, well, just look that up, Zig. And uh, if you're not where you can get cell service, you're not going to be able to start that car. So leave it to Mike. He's parked his car in a park where there's no cell service whatsoever. And now he's not going to be able to start it. And there he is with Rally, his 100-pound Newfoundland or 150 pound Newfoundland and uh, needing a ride to somewhere where he can get cell service so he can call the wrecker to come tow his car two miles down to wherever there's cell service so he can start it with his with his cell phone. And that's just the typical way he lived his life. Every day was just <laughs> an ordeal. And yet, how did he manage to show up on time for a rowing practice every day. That's extraordinary. Uh, well, I guess he knew that if he didn't, he wouldn't be invited back. So if you, if you want something badly enough and you're not good enough to miss practice and still be on the team, then you better be at practice. Well, that's a very, very good summary. Alex, do you have some final thoughts for us? Well, I, two things occurred to me as you were both asking those questions and, and telling that story. One of the things that I loved about the book, and my best friend is still my best friend. My best friend described in that book is still my best friend today, Ruth, and she's also mentioned in the book. Um, and one of the things we loved about the book is that you know, despite all the hyperbole, and there is a fair amount of hyperbole in the rowing gods is pretty hysterical because Mike, as you can tell, because you interviewed him, is the most down to earth, non self aggrandizing person you might ever meet. Um, but the, the mundane details of describing collegiate life and rowing life um, are, are uh, very accurately portrayed. And that's what one of the things that's super fun for somebody that was there to go back and read the book. But, um, you know, it's also, it's a great book for any kid that's thinking about rowing in college because it gives you a little idea that it's not gonna all be glamor. Um, but the other thing about his sort of out there, um, going in a million different directions kind of personality and rowing is that rowing itself is an organizing force for kids like that. 
and um, you see it all the time in high school. You you know you see the the kid who struggles with attention issues um, or other self management issues that you, you give them the structure of of any sport, but rowing I think is particularly um, therapeutic because it's one of it's you know rowing is moving meditation and absolutely positively is it's better moving meditation when you row better but um it it can have a tremendous organizing force on someone and i think on some level mike realized that about himself that 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 was one of the things that would keep keep him on the on the rails on the track was that one thing you know if he just shows up every day and rows um and it, you know he wound up he wound up being successful and a lot of different endeavors. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm completely confident that that's part of the reason why. I can certainly echo your sentiments. I've personally coached children with attention deficit disorder and a couple of other uh, situations where the child and the parents have definitely said that the structure and organizing force of rowing has a significant impact on them and certainly the desire for many of us to continue to enjoy the sport at whatever level we're at and for me one of the joys of crew and i think dave the way you clearly organized your squad in order to facilitate was it a fourth varsity the year that zig was there so you had four crews of lightweight men i no, find actually, that astonishing actually we had six eights of lightweight men there were two eights of freshmen and oh, yeah. four eighths of upperclassmen. And yeah, we, uh, that was at least one boat beyond what the university was, uh, would sanction or allow us to have. So, uh, you know, we took a little bit of liberty perhaps with stretching the budget to, to include uh, a fourth boat. And, you know, I, I think, you know, Mike's self-deprecating he, you know, this book was something that he did right out of college. It just took him 30 years to publish it. And uh, <laughs> that's why he, his memory kept, is so good. <laughs> he kept telling me, yeah, exactly. He kept telling me he was, he was going to publish this book. And you just knew it was going to be hilarious because he is a good writer and it's a very humorous book. I can't say that I recall anything being factual about the book. But then again, that's like what Mike hard says but you'd have a great time with zig and this his telling of the stories was was always much better than even even the incredible fun that you had uh when you know he, he there are many of these stories in the book so i don't need to to tell a lot of those stories uh but i don't know that i would ever label anybody as Yale's worst oarsman ever. That was a self-labeling thing by Zig. Uh, what I do know is he beat Harvard twice in one day. So he's earned a couple of Harvard shirts. And his book, uh, there, there are a number of young uh, teenagers who've read the book and told me, wow, this makes me really want to row for Yale, which I find sort of bizarre. But it, it resonates. Dave, any final thoughts from you about things that perhaps we haven't covered thus far? Well, his work with Stepping Stones was so meaningful. I don't know that if you met Zig and knew how zany he was, that you would have ever expected him to do something quite so impactful and important but he was really a true philanthropist, uh, uh, just a, a great person at the core. Uh, he could have led a life of just, you know, throw, he could have been a very a dilettante. He didn't need to be uh, the, the good person that he was. So uh, uh, the fact that he's, I think the, the foundation is gonna benefit from the sales of the book and, and everything. I. Uh, you know, we're just all sorry that, that he's gone because uh, he's, he's a very good person. Your dedication as friends, as colleagues, as fans, 
is amazing. I was personally slightly nervous when Carol wrote and broke the sad news to me, but your enthusiasm to pick up this date and to fill obviously big shoes has been fantastic. I can't thank you all enough, Carol, Dave, Alex, and of course the absent Mike. The book is called Small Puddles, The Triumphant Story of Yale's Worst Oarsman Ever by Michael P. Danziger. You can buy it on Amazon. You can probably buy it in all good bookshops in the UK as well. Thank you all very, very much for your time. This has been a very special rowing chat. Till next time. Goodbye.